0: Romans chapter 11. So we've been in Romans for two semesters now. Um, And we come now to the last theological and doctrinal passage in the book of Romans. So I was thinking about that coming in here this evening. Last time we were in this room, uh, I believe it was the last time we were in this room, I was preaching from Romans chapter 1. And uh, tonight we're in Romans chapter 11. We've covered a lot of ground. We've talked a lot about good, solid gospel doctrine and just reminded of one of the main uh, core values of this organization is that that uh, value of gospel primacy. That we want the the gospel to be the foundation um, of everything that we do. The message of Christ is salvation for sinners, his life, death and resurrection um, in our place um, that needs to be at the foundation of all that we do and all that we are as Christians, as individuals, and also as an organization and as a, as a group of believers together who fellowship together on campus and are on mission together on campus. And the book of Romans has allowed us to set that foundation really well. We've really kind of looked at the justification by faith alone in Christ and... Um, What the problem is with man, what the problem is with the world is our sin and our rebellion against God and how God loved us even in the midst of our rebellion, that that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and God showed his love to us in that way. He's given us his spirit that overcomes the hostility of our flesh, that though we are hostile against God by nature, he gives us a, a new heart and a new spirit who who loves the Lord, that loves the Lord, and um, we are enabled by His grace to live lives that are pleasing to Him uh, when we once couldn't in our flesh. And that He's given us our spirit uh, so that we would have hope in the midst of suffering, that we would know that we are longing and groaning for something better, which is this glorification of uh, ourselves and of all things. And we've been given the Spirit as a promise of that. In fact, the Spirit Himself groans in us and for us and groanings too deeply for words. When we don't even know how to pray, when things are hard, the Spirit is there and intercedes for us according to the will of God. And we were assured that this will of God is certain for us, right? That it's, we can be confident that all things work together for the good of those who are loved by God and called, by, called according to His purpose, we saw that that's, that's us, believers in Christ, that you're loved by God and you're called by Him. And He foreknew you before the foundation of the earth. He set His love upon you in Christ. And those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Like That's your future. That's your destiny to be like Jesus. And He predestined that. And those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. We can be confident of God's future work of glorification based upon all he is for us. And so we know that God is for us then, right? And if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can be against us. Not sufferings, not persecutions, nothing that you can fathom up can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And if all of this is for God's glory, for his fame, and according to his purposes, What about Israel? Why did Israel in mass reject their Savior, reject their King? Did the promises of God fail? And that's what we talked about in Romans chapter 9. And we saw that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And that God's uh, people have always been Chosen on the basis of grace, not of anything done in us. We talked about Jacob and Esau, how God says before they were born, when they had done nothing, either good or bad. God said, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. And We talked about how we wrestle with that and how it's likened to the reality that that God is this master potter and we are his creation. We are pots in his hands, and he has the right, he has the prerogative uh, to use these vessels that he has created however he sees fit. And this should humble us and move us to thanksgiving because God has shown us mercy. He's made us vessels of mercy prepared for glory by complete grace, by nothing in and of ourselves. And then in chapter 10, we looked at this idea that all who call upon the name of the Lord really emphasize that this doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's election, unconditional election, does not um, contradict the open invitation of the gospel to every creature under the sky. Right. That to to all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right. The message is for everyone. And so we go and we proclaim that message and we trust the Lord who calls effectually by his spirit to work according to his will. And so that's where we have been um, in a rough quick summary there of the book of Romans so far. And um, when we get to 11, this is built upon all that foundation. This chapter is uh, immensely theological and it's built upon this foundation. So we need to keep this context in mind when we try to understand it tonight. And we have to admit that this is another difficult passage. Um, it's a very difficult passage. There's lots of uh, controversy about exactly how we interpret individual little pieces of this passage. Um, and it's just, um, it can be difficult. And you, you, as you read it, if you're not familiar with it, you might say, well, why is that? It seems pretty simple to me. It's because it has lots of implications touching lots of other different things. Okay. And I'm not even going to bring that up so much tonight because I don't want to confuse you. Um, but maybe you will see it when you get there. And if not, hey, that's awesome. Um, but it is a difficult passage. And theologians throughout the centuries have you know, gone back and forth about particular details. And um, just to kind of be upfront with you guys, this is, I've really worked a lot on this passage this week um, in preparation. I knew it was coming Um, obviously you're preaching through the Book of Romans so there was two two chapters I was worried about 7 and 11 Um, and I got through 7 and 11 was harder than 7 and uh, in fact one of the key interpretive elements of this sermon um, let you decide for yourself when we get there if you can figure out which one it is I actually changed my opinion on it mid-sermon and so as I'm writing my sermon outline I'm going wait a second That conclusion I came to earlier this week is not consistent with the earlier parts of this sermon, right? And so even myself, and so I say that I reserve the right to change my mind, you know, next time we go through the book of Romans. Um, Don't come at me. Um, But I'm trying to be faithful to the text, and I'm really not trying to bog down in the weeds and confuse you guys either, Um, but this is God's Word, and so we want to treat it with respect. We want to not just skim over it, but this is God's revelation to ourselves. It's our responsibility to seek it out, to seek the truth to the best of our ability. So in order to interpret any difficult passage, one of the most important things that you need to do is to keep in mind the context. Keep in mind the context, uh, because uh, you don't want people taking your words out of context, do you? Right, you don't want that to happen. And so we want to show respect to Scripture and take it in the context um, that the Apostle Paul put it in and it's in the context of the middle of this letter um, Built upon the foundation of chapters 1 through 10, but is also written to a first century audience um, Who was aware of the things going on in the first century and particularly within the church in this um, budding uh, sect called Christianity um, and So we need to keep that in mind and when we're interpreting a difficult passage, we should seek to be consistent all the way through. Okay? If you have to change your hermeneutics, so hermeneutics is a fancy word for basically a, a system of interpretation, the way you interpret things. So if you have to change your hermeneutic midway through a passage in order to hold on to a doctrine, then you're doing something wrong. We want to be consistent with We want to interpret and use the same tools of hermeneutics in Romans chapter uh, 5 as we use in chapter 10, as we use in chapter 11, as we use in chapter 9. In other words, we don't want to adopt one way of interpretation in this passage and a different one over here because we want to be consistent in how we understand um, the scriptures. It's not not some sort of hodgepodge, uh, but it is one rational revelation. Um, another thing you may see as we get into this passage is that it's not really immensely apl- applicable. In other words, you don't take this passage and here's five rules for life, right, after this passage. Um, <clears throat> there really are only two applications that Paul had in this whole chapter, and I'll go ahead and give them to you in the front. Is one, don't be proud, and two, worship God. That's this really the point of this entire chapter. And so not all sermons... Uh, need to be full of application. But they must move you to behold your God. And and that is the goal this evening, is to behold your God, behold his wisdom, behold his ways, know your God, and worship your God. There's a bunch of application coming in the second half of the book of Romans. So we'll start that next semester with Romans chapter 12. Um, So that is coming. So with all that said, I'm going to pray ask the Lord's help as we jump in here. And then we're going to do it a little differently tonight. Rather than reading it all up front, we're going to read it in sections. Okay, so um, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we come to it now uh, with humility, realizing that we are uh, frail and that we are weak and that we are insufficient to the task. Um, that is at hand. I certainly am insufficient to this task of handling your word. And God, so I ask that your spirit be with me, that your spirit speak through me, and that, um, that your spirit be with the hearers and give them discernment to know what is true and what is good according to your word and according to your glory. And most of all, God, may, be, may we uh, be moved to worship you more deeply through your son Jesus tonight because of this word. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the title tonight is An All-Wise Arborist. An All-Wise Arborist. Who knows what an arborist is? Yeah, someone who works on trees. And so this passage presents God as a uh, keeper of an olive tree. So we'll look at it in three points. Um, Point number one, it's called uh, a remnant by grace. Two, a purposeful and partial hearting hardening, excuse me. And three, a tree of faith. Number one, a remnant by grace. Two, a purposeful and partial hardening. Three, a tree of faith. So let's look at the first point, a remnant by grace. And in order to get this whole uh, context, we need to jump back into chapter 10. And I'm going to read from chapter 10, starting in verse 18 um, through 11, verse 10. So this is God's word. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect attained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is God's word. So again, this passage goes back into chapter 10, really, uh, when we're talking about um, preachers being sent out into the world, right? How are they to call on them, call on him whom they've never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And How are they uh, to preach unless they are sent, right? Preachers are sent out into the world to preach the message of Christ. Um, But what happens is they they go out and preach Christ to uh, their fellow Jews. And what happens is the Jews don't listen. They they don't respond to the message. Um, And they, um, as it were, they were kind of blind to it. They did not have ears to hear or eyes to see. And so Paul deals with this objection once again as, has God rejected his people? So you might might be like, this question again? Didn't we already talk about this? And yeah, it's this question again. Because again, if you go into the context, you think about the first century church, you have this Jewish Messiah who sends out his disciples into the world and they're proclaiming the message of the victory of the Jewish Messiah that this Jewish man is king in which all the nations are going to come to him and worship him and and all these things and and you go to them and they don't receive it they don't receive the message that's odd okay so I'm going to take the message now And take it to the Gentiles the Jews aren't listening God says to take it to uh, Judea Samaria to the the ends of the earth right so we're going to go to the ends of the earth and take this message to the Gentiles the Gentiles are that's interesting the whole cross part is seems kind of foolish how are the Jews responding to this message well they're not really liking it they honestly they ran me out of town the last place they tried to stone me Um, and they they kicked me out of the city. I had to escape out a window and come through this. They really don't like this message. Hmm, that's interesting. So you're saying that the king of the Jews is rejected by his own people? You see the problem? You see why Paul's having to address this issue so many times? Has God rejected his people? He says, by no means. And then he says there's really uh, a few proofs. And the first is... Himself, Paul, Paul provides himself as an example. He says, I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Jew. God has not rejected the Jews. I'm a Jew, right? That's what Paul's saying. And then he says this. This is this is a key verse. Underline this verse. He has not rejected those whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Remember that? It's going to be very vitally important. This echoes back to that golden chain in chapter 8. <clears throat> and then he, he gives another example of Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and talks about the time that Elijah was you know, on the run and, and people were trying to kill him, right? And he, he cries out to God. He's like, God, I'm the last one left. <laughs> there, there's no one else on earth who, who worships you. And then what does God say to him? No. You know, he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul's application of that is so too, just like in Elijah's day, there is a remnant. Presently, there is a remnant that is chosen by grace. So when Elijah thought he was all alone, God says, no, nope, actually, I have chosen 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Who, who are faithful, in other words. You're not alone in this. I have preserved a remnant. It's a small number. 7,000 compared to the, the multitude of the nation of Israel is, is, is pretty small. But it is still a remnant. God has pr- chosen and um, preserved a people for himself. And so Paul says that just like it was in Elijah's day, it is in our day too. <coughs> and this preservation of the remnant is always by grace as you can see. And then he uses quotations from Isaiah, um, well, Moses and Isaiah and David, um, to speak of the hardening of the non-elect, that these things happen. We see those in verses um, 8 through 10. And so this is, he's dealing with that. What is Paul's answer for, has God rejected his people? No, I'm proof. I am a faithful Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Just like in Elijah's day, God preserved people for himself from the nation of Israel. He's still doing that today. He hasn't completely rejected his people. He has not rejected those whom he foreknew. And so what we see there is this, these who are foreknown by God is this remnant of God. Right, so let's keep those straight in our minds. Remnant, these who are foreknown of God, these are the same people. The elect are the same people in this passage. That God has chosen, God has elected people within the nation of Israel, even in this first century time, who would be saved. Um, and it's all by grace. And verse six is interesting. Need, that's another one to, to look at. It says, it's by grace, not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So anytime you try to add any type of work to the basis of your election or your salvation or any of these things, you're by definition, overthrowing grace. Because in order for it to be grace, it must be free and not on the basis of works. And so Paul's saying it's the same today as it has been throughout redemptive history. So now we'll move into the second section here when we look at this purposeful and partial hardening. We see this um, really in David's, uh, the quote from David here in verses 9 and 10 particularly in 10, where David says, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This idea that those um, who are rejecting God are walking around blinded. And we see in this passage that God has actually hardened some of his people for his purposes. It's a purposeful hardening, but it is also partial. It's not complete. We see these in verses 11 through 16. So I'll read this section again. Inasmuch then as I am a apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Alright, so in this passage we see this explanation of this hardening um, that has taken place within the people of Israel, within the Jews. Uh, One thing that we see is that the hardening isn't total. It's not total. It says, did they stumble in order that they may fall? In other words, they didn't stumble to completely fall away, to be completely lost as a whole. Right? The stumbling block was not for that purpose. So what was the purpose? The purpose that we see is that the majority are hardened in order to bring in the Gentiles. It was God's intention from the very beginning. If you read through the Psalms, you can't help but see this. It was God's intention to bless the nations, to bless the Gentile nations through Israel. What was the promise given to Abraham? In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So from the very beginning, the whole point, of the promise to Abraham, which is significant and which is like the foundation of the Jewish people. The whole point of that was to bless the whole world. And the way God saw fit to do it, we see here in this chapter, is that um, he does it through the unbelief and the rejection of the Messiah, of the Jews. That these majority are hardened to bring in the Gentiles. The, the rejection of Christ, which would include his crucifixion and the Persecution of his followers. This pushed the gospel out to the Gentile nations. You say, what do you see at first? The Christians stay in Jerusalem, right? They stay in Jerusalem. They stay there for a while. They're evangelizing to their fellow Jews, right? But what happens? There begins to be an intensity of persecution among the church. We see this with the martyrdom of Stephen. Right, where he he's preaching to his fellow Jews, his fellow countrymen, and he's telling them about the, the purposes of God throughout history and, and how God's people have always rejected his prophets. Right? We see this throughout the Old Testament that the majority rejects God's word. They turn to false prophets, they kill the true prophets. And Stephen's like, You're doing this again. You're rejecting him again. And what do they do? They plug their ears. And blah, 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 until they could find some stones. And they picked up the stones and killed him. Right. Stephen's martyrdom is a demonstration of the same thing that the Israelites have done to their prophets throughout generations. And this persecution then pushed the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and into the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, who had seen a great light. That the light of Christ had shone into what was dark. And they seen the light, and they were coming. They were receiving this gospel. At the end of the book of Acts, um, the Apostle Paul is on house arrest at the end of Acts. If you've not read the, end of, if you've not read the book of Acts, that's your assignment um, for your summer reading. Read the book of Acts. Um, and at the end of Acts, Paul's in on house arrest. So they're really trying to get him, right? They, they, they can't quite kill him. So they want to get him to Rome before the Caesar. And, and he has all these trials. And it ends up, well, he gets to spend, I think, it, if I remember correctly, it's two years, I think, um, in Rome on house arrest. And all during that time, he's just writing the Bible, right? He's preaching to people. People are coming to his house to hear the message of the gospel. So he's just like getting to preach the gospel on Caesar's dime, right? It's a really cool providence of God. And right at the end of the book of Acts, where he's on house arrest, he's kind of preaching to these people. These, um, These were actually Jews who were coming to hear him preach. In Acts 28, he says this. He says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Okay? Listen to what he said. The Holy Spirit, referring to Scripture, was right in saying to your fathers, through the Isaiah the prophet. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, that was a quotation. That was a quotation of Isaiah, and here's Paul's application. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You see what happened? Just like Stephen. Your fathers always persecuted and killed the prophets. They wouldn't listen. Paul says the same thing. The Spirit was right of talking about you through your fathers. You're just like your fathers. You you see, but you can't um, perceive. Um, You harden your heart. You close your eyes. You, You stop up your ears. And so he says, the gospel then, because of this, the gospel has been sent to the Gentiles. And he has this last little point. They will listen. Think about that. As a Jew, you're hearing this. The Gentiles will listen. How would that hit you? You'd be kind of offended by that, wouldn't you? Those pagans? They don't have the law. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the covenants or the promises. They eat pigs. (laughs) What do you mean? You're pretending that they're more righteous than we are? That they're more perceptive to the truth than we are? are you kidding me Paul that's what he's saying God is sending the message of salvation to the Gentiles because they will listen what does that do that makes them jealous that makes the Jews jealous that these Gentiles are receiving the blessing of their God you see and Paul says this is this is the point God hardened the hearts of the, the non elect, harden the hearts of these um, Jews in order to take the gospel to the Gentile, then the Jews would be jealous and repent and turn to Christ and be saved. You see how that works? It says the Gentiles then will come in and make the Jews jealous. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> Rather, through their trespass, salvation comes to the Gentiles, as to make Israel jealous. Look at verse 14. Um, Paul says that his, the purpose of his ministry among the Gentiles is to make his fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You see? So there's this purpose for the hardening, to make the Jews jealous that they would return to their God. Now, it was a partial hardening. Some Jews can and will be saved. Again, we see this in Paul. There's a remnant chosen by grace, and this is good. This is a good thing. This is a good act of God's mercy and grace that he saves anybody. Remember that. The, the grace is never owed. It's a gift. The minute that you expect grace to be owed, you're not talking about grace anymore, right? So the fact that any Jews are saved, the fact that anyone is saved, is good, is good news, is fully grace of God. And, and Paul goes there and he says, you know, if their rejection is a good thing, the fact that the Jews reject the gospel, and now the whole world is saved, that's a good thing. Think about that. For centuries, God's purposes, God's covenant, God's grace towards the world was focused on one family, one family a large tribe, one people group, the Jews. And now, through Christ, the whole world is saved. And God has designed it so that they're saved through the rejection of the Jews. And Paul's saying, if their rejection is a good thing, which we can all agree, as Gentiles, we certainly agree, this is a good thing, right? Then he says, how much better is their acceptance? Right? If God... Like, we should rejoice that through their rejection the world is saved, how much more should we rejoice when they accept the gospel, when they do turn to Christ and are saved? So the point of this partial hardening is not for us to say that it's impossible for Jews to be saved. If you've ever been taught that, then then that's false. That's false doctrine. Um, As we can see, a, a large chunk of the first century church was Jew. Paul himself was Uh, was a Jew Um, so Jews can and will be saved by the grace of God Um, so we shouldn't make that application we shouldn't look at the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people as a whole and say well then that means they're all you know accursed they're all reprobate they're all hopeless no they can be saved as well and so we preach the gospel um, to them as well uh, the, as we move into the next section, I just want to kind of insert this here, and we'll see it even more so in the next section, but <clears throat> any sort of anti-Semitism that has been prevalent in the Christian church throughout church history. You don't have to look far in the church history, and you can see this sort of anti-Semitism where this distortion of Christian truth is, um, comes up in Christian theology where somehow the Jews are, as a people, cursed that they are hopeless and that they are lost and that they are damned, that they're Christ killers and we shouldn't evangelize them, we should shun them. You see that, you do see that come up in church history, Um, but that is in direct contradiction to what we see in the pages of Scripture um, here. Um, And what we'll see when we get in this next section is those who have such a posture towards the Jewish people will themselves be cut off. Right? There's an... Arrogance towards the Jewish people that will lead to your own being cut off and accursed that we see there. So I just want to add that um, bit in there. That doesn't mean that we don't... Now, uh, let me just do this here as well. This also doesn't mean that the Jewish people are special and that they don't need evangelism, that they are saved because of their ethnicity. That doesn't mean that either, because why did all the apostles risk their life to take the gospel to them, right? It, they, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? You have to confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth, believe in your heart that Christ, that God raised him from the dead to be saved, right? So we don't believe that Jews have some sort of special status and that they will be saved after the rapture or whatever you want to believe about that, um, whatever you, you, sh- you shouldn't believe about that. <laughs> like we don't be- that's not what the Bible teaches, that we just wait until sometime in the future and God will then deal with the Jews. No, we take the gospel to them today because they're still a remnant chosen by grace. You see? Now, third section. A tree of faith. And this will be in verses 17 through um, verse 32. Verse 17. Let me back up for context. Let me start in 16. Paul says, If the dough offered as First fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, remember he's talking to the Gentiles, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. (coughs) Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, "...and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and the full, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved." As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience... So they, too, have now been disobedient in order that by mercy, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. All right. So as we come to this olive tree illustration, there's a few sort of things we need to address up front. First, this is completely off topic, but this is important. The olive tree is an illustration and not a horticulture lesson. <clears throat> Some unbelievers and skeptics of the Bible will point to this passage and say, see, the Bible's not true because you can't actually graft olive trees in the way that he's talking about grafting them there. This is not scientifically and like horticulturally accurate um, here. So the Bible is not true, right? See." Sinners come up with all sorts of clever things to not have to deal with their sin. Um, Obviously, this is an illustration. It's meant to uh, communicate a lesson, and that's it, as far as it goes. You know, if if you had to evaluate my truthfulness based on all the uh, illustrations that I can come up with, I'm the biggest liar on the face of the earth because I have horrible illustrations. But that's not the point of the passage. It's meant to be an illustration, not a horticulture lesson. Secondly, the olive tree illustration plays off of a pre-existing image of Israel from Scripture. What I mean by that is you look through the Old Testament, there's sprinkled throughout it this idea that Israel is an olive tree that is loved by God. We see this in Jeremiah 11, verse 16. It says, The Lord once called you a green olive tree, Beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. This, this prediction of judgment for the nation of Israel where the branches are cut off and consumed. In Matthew 21, after cleansing the temple, Jesus curses a fig tree. Have you ever seen that passage? It's like, whoa, Jesus, what? Like, You just went, went crazy on this fig tree. What's up with that? It's loaded with significance. That's what's up with that. Like Jesus wasn't having a bad day and went off on a fig tree. No, he was preaching a message. He was being a prophet in that moment. And what is that message? Is that he's prophesying the coming destruction of Jerusalem. That the olive tree is not bearing fruit. And for that reason, it's useless. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be broken off. It's going to be uh, burned with fire, like Jeremiah said there. So that's a couple things that sort of sets up this olive tree illustration. Now, um, I think the best way to go out this, go about this, how we understand the olive tree is to sort of break off, pun not intended, but I wish it was intended, to to break off the different branches and parts of the tree and sort of say this equals that, right? And so it is uh, my interpretation um, that is supported by many theologians who are much smarter than me, um, that I, I, as I go through this passage, here's, here's what I see. <clears throat> First, the tree is, represents God's covenant people throughout redemptive history. The olive tree is God's covenant people throughout redemptive history. Primarily, we see this is, at this point, the Jews. Those, the, the, the nation of Israel. Now, it wasn't all uh, actual offspring of Abraham because even in the old covenant, Gentiles could uh, kind of convert and become Jews um, through various processes. So it's not always that. But the nation of Israel is God's covenant people throughout history. And this is what the tree is. The broken branches, the branches that are broken off, are unbelieving Jews unbelieving Jews who did not believe the gospel, who have rejected Christ. The grafted in branches are Gentile believers in Christ. These are the grafted branches. And what we see in here is that all branches, whether the natural uh, branches that are broken off or the grafted in branches, can be broken off due to unbelief. So we, we have branches that are attached to the covenant people of God, right? And they're broken off because of their unbelief, but we also see that broken branches can be grafted back in. We see that at the end of the illustration here. <clears throat> and so what do, we, what, do we, what do we do with this? The application really to make this simple is, Gentiles, don't be proud. Don't think that you're better because you're a Christian. Don't think that you are more loved by God because, um, and let, me, let me back that up. Don't think that you're more loved by God as a particular people than the Jews are because it was all by grace. You were grafted into this tree and you actually didn't really have any right to be part of this tree. You were a wild uncultivated tree and, and God grafted you into it so, so don't be proud don't boast over that you don't support the tree he says this tree supports you this tree has been here for centuries millennia even depending how far you want to push it back The tree doesn't need you you need the tree you are as we saw earlier in the book offspring of Abraham if you had the same faith as Abraham right and so we shouldn't boast over the natural branches. That's the point. It's always by grace. Salvation is always by grace alone. So there's no reason to boast. Remember uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Right? They were saved by grace through faith. And This is not of your own. It's the gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. So that God gets all the glory. So don't boast. It's by grace. Now, um, some of the controversy. Now, if you're not familiar with this passage at all, you're like, oh yeah, that's obvious. Thanks, Clint. I'm glad you worked so hard on that this week. But it gets difficult depending on your different traditions sort of give you glasses to understand this text. You know, there are certain, uh, it it enters into the the equation when we deal with ecclesiology and the arguments between Presbyterians and Baptists. And it deals with your... um, eschatology and what's going to happen at the end of time is there going to be a mass conversions of Jews at the end of time or they were just talking about something that's going to happen in a uh, earthly millennium that happens like there's there's different doctrines that float around this passage that you got to make sure you got your ducks in a row in order to be consistent through all of them so but the good news is that's not the main point But those are the things that theology nerds like to argue about on the Internet. and So it can make things confusing. So and I would never frequent one of those, you know, Facebook groups. Never, never. So where were we? Salvation by grace alone. Olive tree. Okay. last point. Now, this one is important. Um, This is a, a difficult part to understand right here just to make sure that we're Right in line with what Paul wanted us to understand, is in verse 26. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. What are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean all Israel will be saved? And here's where those other theology things start crashing in and, and make you understand how this is. So uh, there's two options. I'm going to give you two options. These are the uh, most prevalent interpretations of what Paul means when he says, all Israel will be saved. Because let me back up a little bit before I jump into that. You you see what's going on here. Um, He's saying that the, hey, don't boast over the um, broken off branches because they can be grafted back in. And then he says, um, how much more? So if you were grafted in and you're contrary to nature, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their olive tree, their own olive tree? Then he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So what it sounds like he's saying And what I thought about this passage until about three days ago, and I changed my mind like three times on that same day, was that he's saying that right now, in the present time, there is a hardening over ethnic Israel. And that is going to remain until all the Gentiles, all the elect Gentiles are saved. So throughout the rest of church history, until all the Gentile nations, so the last Gentile comes into the church, at that time, God will remove this partial hardening over ethnic Israel, and there will be a mass conversion of Jews to Christ. And in that way, they're all going to be grafted back into their own tree. And in that way, all Israel now will be saved because they got jealous. The whole world is worshiping their Messiah, except for us right? And they all turn to Christ and now all Israel is saved. Very common thing. And if you believe that, good. I'm I'm tempted to believe that myself. And I think I still kind of believe that, but I'm just not sure that that's what this passage is saying. So here's the options. Number one, there will be a mass conversion of ethnic Jews before the return of Christ due to that removal of the partial hardening and through their jealousy. Now here's the second option, and here's where I, I landed um, on this passage, kind of done a full circle, just to be clear where my, my, my journey, right? We're all on a journey. My journey in this passage is I used to believe what I believe now, then I changed my mind, and I changed it back again. So we're gone full circle. But this is, this is the position that I've landed on, and it is this, that all the elect, spiritual Israel, will be saved by grace through faith. That's what he's getting at with this. But going back to Romans chapter nine, verse six, where he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are of Israel are Israel. And so we see even within Paul, these sort of two types of Israel. There's Israel according to the flesh. Then there's the true Israel of God who was, has the faith of Abraham. And that includes Gentiles in the new covenant. Um, so here are my reasons for number two. And, and I will admit a plain reading of Romans 11, 1 lends itself to the first interpretation. I'll admit that. And if you want to say that's good for me, I'm with you. Go with it. But here are my reasons for number two. Verse 26 doesn't say until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in then all Israel will be saved. It says, in this way, in this manner. So Paul is talking about the manner in which Israel will be saved, not the chronology in which they will be saved. He also says that um, some of the branches were broken off right at the beginning here. Then Paul also, this, the idea of jealousy is what I'm getting at here. Paul's um, saw his own ministry to be to make the Jews, his fellow Jews of the first century, jealous and turn to Christ in his day. So he, he saw that the ones getting jealous and turning to Christ were like his peers, those who were living in his day, not some future thing that's going to happen. The other is with the use of mystery. So when we're reading through this, he says, you know, that they'll all be um, that. How much more would they be grafted back into their own tree? Then he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Now, when we hear the word mystery. We think primarily about something that's in our future. Right, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to clue you in on a mystery. That, that's something that's in our future that we don't know yet. Right. That's not the way Paul uses the word mystery. Throughout the New Testament, the use of the word mystery um, is never something that is in the future and unknown. It is always what has been concealed by God in the past and is now made known clearly in Christ. So he talks over and over again about the mystery of the gospel that God has kept hidden in ages past that he is now revealed in his son, Jesus, right? The mystery is what the Jews couldn't see in the old covenant that was hidden in types and shadows and now made clear in Christ, right? It's it's an epiphany. Light has been shown into this. And the final thing um, is how is that partial hardening removed? How is it removed? It is removed through the gospel message. That's how it's removed. Where, where do you get that clamp? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Paul says, "We Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Listen to this, verse 14. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. How is that hardness of heart overcome? Through turning to the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Jew or Gentile. It's always according to the electing purposes of God's grace that salvation comes. The veil of hardening is removed through hearing of Christ and responding with faith and repentance. So that's why I landed where I landed. I felt like working through this passage as a whole, especially going at a pretty quick pace, through 9 and 10, really helps set us up to see what is the main argument. It goes back to 9. Not all who are Israel are Israel. God has not rejected who? Those whom he foreknew. It's all tied back to that. That's, that's why I, I land where I land on what he means by, um, in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, what are some challenges to my position One of the biggest ones is that the meaning of Israel changes within one sentence. Right? Verse 25 and 26, you have Israel used and they mean two different things. (coughs) Um, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles. That's speaking about the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, the elect. We'll be saved. You see, you now people say, that's inconsistent hermeneutics, Clint. And I would say, it could be. But if the evidence in chapter 9 gives me at least some credibility to go there. And Paul did that in chapter 9. And then in verse 28, he says, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Which I'll admit, that seems to suggest that there's some sort of covenantal promise um, of inclusion um, because of the promise made to Abraham and the forefathers. I don't really have a good argument against that. (laughs) Verse 12. Verse 12 speaks of the full inclusion of the gospel. The question is, is that the full inclusion of them as a people? Or is that the full inclusion of them as individuals in terms of coming to Christ and being being saved like as rejection versus inclusion you see that rather than a partial inclusion and then a full inclusion um, that's another if, he, if he's talking about full inclusion in terms of everybody believing in Jesus versus just a few then that would be a challenge to my position um, so I'll, I'll close with this little bit here so regardless I personally do believe there will be a future conversion of the Jews. But I think that that is the result of the worldwide success of the gospel and centuries upon centuries of time going by without another legitimate Messiah. I think the Jewish people will turn to Christ and be saved. Um, I'm just not convinced that that's what this passage is talking about. But maybe it is. So, so if you take that position, then, then you get both of the positions you know, um, so maybe it is, maybe it's not. Um, hopefully I haven't confused you on that, but these are, um, just wanted to make sure that you saw everything that's going on there and that you understand that. Um, so yeah, I do believe in a future conversion. It's not sure that that's what this passage is talking about. Um, but it, it could be. So let's close with this, uh, summary. How about that? God has not rejected his people because he has not rejected those whom he foreknew. God has always saved a remnant of believers, even in times when it seemed like there was only one person left. The rejection of the majority of the Jewish people was purposeful and partial. God meant to use their rejection to save the whole world. And God meant the salvation of all the other nations to make the Jewish nation jealous so that they would return to their God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because all of this is according to the sovereign purposes of God and not of ourselves, we Gentiles should not be proud toward unbelieving Jews. We should rather ensure that we do not fall into unbelief and get broken off too. We should not interpret God's providence and all of this as an excuse to exclude people from the gospel. Rather, we should understand verse 32, that God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And we should proclaim Christ to people of every people, tribe, nation and tongue, that the veil of sin would be removed from their hearts that they would confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised them from the dead and be saved. And let us be faithful in this work and trust the all-wise arborist to graft and prune as he sees fit. So uh, let us pray that God would bless us in this. So God, we do ask that you be about the work that you have promised to accomplish in your word, that you use us, to proclaim the message of Christ, to take the gospel um, through which the veil of sin is removed, and to take it to every nation, to every uh, image bearer that we come across from day to day, and that you might move us to to move toward and to go to those who are lost. Lord, we thank you that you have had mercy on us, that, that you have in your wisdom used our disobedience. You've used our rebellion and our sin against you in order to bring us mercy. Lord, you alone are wise to accomplish this and remain perfectly just and righteous. And so, Lord, we honor you and we worship you. And God, I pray that as we consider your wisdom in doing all this, um, that our hearts be moved to trust you with our lives and to worship you um, with all our hearts. And we ask that you do this so that we would be more like your son, Jesus. That's our great goal. And we ask this in his name. Amen.